Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Have you ever wondered what kind of archaeological evidence we have for the events of the life of Jesus? Well, there's a resource now that you can get that will tell you it's brand new, and we're going to cover today the top 20 discoveries about Jesus outside the Bible. Now, we're not probably going to get to all 20 today, but we'll tell you what we're going to do at the end of the program. We'll get through as many as we can. My friend Titus Kennedy, Dr. Titus Kennedy, has written a fabulous new book, and I read every single word of this book. The title is Excavating the Evidence for Jesus, the Archaeology and History of Christ and the Gospels. And Titus has his Ph.D. from the University of South Africa. He also teaches at Biola University. He is connected to the Discovery Institute up there in Washington State. And he also has written a book called Unearthing the Bible. We've had Titus on before. In fact, we actually did a program a couple of years ago with Titus and uh, Stephen Meyer, his colleague at the Discovery Institute, of the top 10 discoveries for the Exodus from Egypt. So you need to go to our YouTube channel to see that. But we're going to talk about the top 20 discoveries about Jesus outside the Bible. Here's my friend Titus Kennedy. Titus, how are you? Doing great. Thanks for having me back on the show, Frank. And thanks for reading every word of my book. Every single word. And it is a great book, ladies and gentlemen. Let me tell you that. It really is. It really is a great book. And it was a fun book to read because this book gives you so much background as to what's going on. And it's it's written... Uh, in in a chronological way from the birth of Jesus all the way to the resurrection of Jesus. So there's eight chapters, and they cover different aspects of Jesus's life. Let's start in chapter one, Titus. We're just going to be able, uh, ladies and gentlemen, to cover this at a very surface letter, uh, level. You really need to get the book for all the details. But the first discovery, which I found very fascinating, was the place and the nature of Jesus's birth. Can you tell us a little bit about that, Titus? Sure. So we know from the Gospels that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, you know, specifically Matthew and Luke talk about that. And there's even a brief reference to knowledge of this idea in the book of John. But uh, the early Christians, they remembered where Jesus was born in Bethlehem, not just in the village, but specifically a particular area, uh, supposedly even the cave in which he was born. And they continue to commemorate that over time. And then in the second century, around 130, 135 AD, Emperor Hadrian, who had this campaign to basically erase or syncretize sites associated with Jesus, he went there and he had a Roman shrine built, a shrine to Adonis built. But he actually helped preserve the location for the future because then in the fourth century, that's when Constantine sent his mother, and she had a number of churches built, including the Church of the Nativity. So, ironically, by trying to get rid of Christianity, Emperor Hadrian marked spots that helped us identify what Christianity, or the places that were important to Christianity, and Bethlehem's one of them. What about 
uh, the nature of Christ's birth, that he was born of a virgin. Does anybody say that other than the Bible? Yeah, actually, there was a second century Roman who was a very harsh critic of Christianity. His name was Celsus. And he goes on a diatribe about various things having to do with Jesus. But he's aware of so many important details about the life of Jesus, including that Jesus was born in a certain Judean village and and this idea of the virgin birth. He knows about the claim of the virgin birth. And he knows that there's something strange going on be between Mary and Joseph. Hmm. Yeah, and obviously it doesn't mean Chelsea actually believed in it, but at least he knew that's what the Christians believe. So the place and nature of his birth is something that can be found in non-Christian sources. Uh, number two in the top 20 is the murderous nature of Herod the Great. Uh, how do we know that Herod was the type of guy that might order the killing of the children, all the children in Bethlehem? This is something that's very obvious from the writings of Josephus, which is our biggest source on Herod. And we see reading through the life of Herod that he had many of his political rivals and even family members assassinated. Anyone who he thought was threatening his power, he was really paranoid about this and became even more so near the end of his life. So in this like last three years, seven to four BC area of his life, which is where we would place the birth of Jesus, he actually even had some of his sons assassinated because he thought they were trying to usurp his throne. So it's it's really easy to see that he might have several babies who were peasant families in Bethlehem killed because he thought that one of these was going to grow up and then take his throne from him. Mm, mm. And so there are non-Christian writers that tell us, Josephus being one of them, about how murderous Herod was. So this isn't just in the Bible, ladies and gentlemen. This is in other non-Christian sources. The third top discovery that I found fascinating in the book, and again, the book is called Excavating the Evidence for Jesus by my friend Titus Kennedy, PhD in archaeology, been on several digs. And I've, I've been to this place, Titus, and it's my favorite spot in Israel, actually. And it's the synagogue where Jesus taught in Capernaum. Tell us about that. Yeah, this is one of the most beautiful ancient synagogues, really, in, in the land of Israel that's preserved. People go there, and they know that Capernaum is associated with Jesus, and they see this synagogue, and initially they might think, oh, this was the synagogue in which Jesus taught. But it's not. That synagogue is actually underneath the one that you're walking in. So there's this elaborate white stone synagogue, that dates to the 4th and 5th century, but directly under that is the 1st century synagogue made of black basalt stone sourced locally. And this is dated to the time of Jesus based on the pottery and the coins that were found in the excavations there. And the walls, the foundation walls, are still preserved, so there's something left of it. We have you know, archaeological ruins of the synagogue in which Jesus taught there in Capernaum. Yeah, it's my favorite place to go in Israel, Capernaum. There's so much in Capernaum. How many synagogues have been discovered, Titus? Because obviously there were synagogues the Bible talks about. Is it really true there were synagogues in the time of Jesus other than this one at Capernaum? Yeah, there were definitely multiple synagogues in the, in the land of Judea and Galilee during the time of Jesus. So the Capernaum one is quite famous, uh, but there's also another fairly well-known synagogue at Gamla, 
And then there's evidence of a synagogue in Jerusalem from the Theodotos inscription, which talks about the synagogue, but we haven't found the building. Uh, then we've got other places like Magdala, where they found supposedly even a second synagogue. There is evidence now recently, too, for one in Chorazin. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we could look at some other places, Caesarea Maritima, it seems like there might have been one there, too. So we've got several. And as excavations are continuing, more and more are being discovered. So this older idea that synagogues didn't exist in the time of Jesus, and so we shouldn't actually expect to find them, the Gospels are in error on that, is not what we're finding archaeologically at all. They were pretty widespread. In fact, if you come with us to Israel this September, ladies and gentlemen, all the details are on our website. We're going to go to all these synagogues. We're going to go to Capernaum. We're going to go to Chorazin. We're going to go to... Uh, the one in Magdala, they're all within 10 minutes of each other by bus. They're right there. How about the number four is Peter's house in Capernaum? We've discovered that as well. What's that about, Titus? Well, this was a house that originally seemed to have been constructed around the first century BC. So Capernaum was getting to be an old and lived in village by the time of Jesus, didn't start right during his life. Uh, But then we see something happens in the archaeology. Around the second half of the first century, this building ceases to be used just as a house. It's more of a meeting place. We see some changes in the pottery, see some changes in the the structure. So I can talk about that when we come back. Yeah, let's talk about that after the break. It's fascinating, Capernaum Capernaum is. And as I say, we're going there in September with Ellie Shukran. The archaeologists who discovered the Pool of Siloam and excavated most of the city of David. Go to our website, crossexamine.org, for more. And we're back in just two minutes with Titus Kennedy. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek, on the American Family Radio Network. No, you're not listening to NPR. You're never going to hear this on NPR. We're talking about the top... 20 discoveries about Jesus outside the Bible based on the new book by Titus Kennedy. It's called Excavating the Evidence for Jesus, the Archaeology and History of Christ and the Gospels. Before we get back to Titus, I want to mention I'll be at Southbrook Church in Weddington, North Carolina. That's about where I live, right? My hometown this Sunday. Uh, And we're going to start with I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist that Sunday morning and then successive five Wednesday nights. We're going to go through the I don't have enough faith to be an atheist material straight through from does truth exist all the way to the Bible is the word of God. We're going to take your questions. And if you want to be a part of that, check our website out, crossexamine.org in Weddington, North Carolina. That's where we're going to be at South Brook Church. We're going to meet in five Wednesday nights in June, actually one in May and then four others in June. So check our calendar. You can you don't have to come to all if you're in the local area and you want to come to one or two of them or whatever you want to do. You're always welcome. It's going to be open to the public. So check that all out. All right, back to Titus. We're doing the top 20 discoveries about Jesus outside the Bible. Titus, we're on number four, Peter's house in Capernaum. Tell us a little bit more about that. So in the middle of the first century, we start to see a change there. Uh, second half of the first century, it gets converted into more of a meeting house. And we see in the second century, they've plastered the walls. So they're fixing up this building. And this is when graffiti inscriptions start to appear on the walls. And we see things praising Jesus Christ. And there are a couple that mention the name Peter also. 
And then later on, uh, we see pilgrims, early Christian pilgrims are going to this house, like Agaria. And she talks about how it's, it was the house of Peter that got changed into a church. But it actually isn't until quite a while after Christianity becomes legalized that there's what we might call an official church building built there. That's not, it's not until the fifth century when they build a Byzantine church around it to protect it. But it had a long standing tradition as one of these early, early house churches. And it was associated with Peter. It seems very plausible. It's about a 10 second walk from the synagogue, which if you read the gospels about the, the location of the synagogue to Peter's house, it sounds like it's right next to it. So it makes a lot of sense to me. Titus, was this the uh, house through which those guys lowered Jesus? I mean, I mean, lowered the paralytic into the house or was that a house next to it? Or, we, or don't we know? Uh, I think it was probably a different house. A different house, because this they is Peter's. Would, would have been very similar. Yeah, this is Peter's mother-in-law's house, or is it Peter's house? Uh, I, I, same, same. It was his mother-in-law's house. Okay. He moved from Bethsaida to Capernaum, and it sounds like he must have moved into the family home when he got married. And so you're saying there's actually graffiti about Jesus from the first century in there? From starting in the second century is okay. when we see the graffiti, yeah. Now, if you go there, ladies and gentlemen, it looks like the Millennium Falcon has landed right on this house because there's a, a Roman Catholic church built on top of it with a glass floor. So when you're in the church, you can look down and actually see Peter's house there. It's fascinating. Capernaum is an amazing spot. All right. Number five in the top 20, the Pool of Bethesda from John chapter five. Tell us about that, Titus. In John's description there, he says, that the pool of Bethesda had five porticos or five stoas. And so before this was rediscovered and excavated, scholars weren't really sure what John was talking about. You know, was, was he making an error? Why this odd five-sided stoa pool? But when archaeologists finally dug this up, they found that it was four-sided, like a rectangle, with the fifth stoa going in the middle dividing it into upper and lower pool sections. Mm, mm. And so John, you know, he was there before 70 AD when the city was destroyed. He knew what it was talking about, what it looked like. And he talks about the healing miracle, of course, right? So there's this association with healing going on at the Pool of Bethesda. Well, Hadrian went here too. And what did Hadrian build there? He built a temple to the god of healing Asclepius. So it seems like he was trying to get people to associate the healing miracle with a Roman deity rather than with Jesus. And yet again, you know, he helped preserve this place. He helped us to understand what the early thoughts and associations were with this pool. And then a Byzantine church was eventually built there after they uh, dismantled this, this Asclepius shrine. And when we go to Israel, we'll go to the Pool of Bethesda. It's just north of the Temple Mount. Now, south of the Temple Mount, at the very bottom of the city of David, which was Jerusalem in David's day, the Pool of Siloam. That's number six in our list. Tell us about that, Titus. So the Pool of Siloam was really similar to the Pool of Bethesda. They were both ritual purification pools, at least during the time of Jesus. That's what they were primarily for. And they had these steps, these stone steps where you would walk down into the pool. And that's what we see in both of them. But Siloam, this was not discovered until very recently, mm -hmm. because similar to Bethesda, 
there are kind of two sections to the pool. So we knew about this upper pool of Siloam that goes back way back to the time of Hezekiah in the 8th century BC. But we didn't know about this pool, the lower pool, during the time of Jesus until recently when it was kind of unaccidentally discovered by construction. And then your friend, Eli Shukran, mm-hmm. excavated there and showed that this was in use during the first century. And it went out of use right when the city was destroyed in 70 AD and had been covered since then. Ellie also discovered the tunnel that runs from the Pool of Siloam all the way to the Temple Mount, actually all the way underneath the Temple Mount. So you walk, which probably, I don't know how far it is, maybe 800 yards, 500 yards. It's it's a ways underground. You're going underground, which was an ancient sewer, actually, all the way from the Pool of Siloam right to underneath the Temple Mount, and you, you... you pop up right next to the temple. I mean, it's an amazing, it's an amazing channel to go in, and you see these huge stones that are the foundation of the Temple Mount underneath uh, the Temple Mount itself. It's incredible. So again, when you guys come, if any of you come to Israel with us, Ellie will take us there. We're going to go from the discovery, which he discovered in 2004, as as uh, Titus said, uh, discovered in 2004, Pool of Siloam. It was, a, it was a ritual washing place. They would then walk up this channel to get to the temple so they would be ritually clean by going in the pool of Siloam. So it's a fascinating discovery. And of course, Ellie has excavated just about everything in the city of David, and he has the keys to places most, most uh, guides don't have. So I hope you guys who are listening can join us. Uh, just go to crossexamine.org and click on events. You'll see it there. All right, number seven on our list of the top 20 discoveries outside the Bible about Jesus is the nature of the town of Bethany where Jesus raised Lazarus. What evidence do we have outside the Bible that this is actually where Lazarus, Lazarus, easy for me to say, Lazarus was raised, and also that there was some descriptions about that area that are consistent with what the Bible says? So if we look at this place archaeologically, we've got evidence of first century occupation there and not just of any people. But if we look at some of the ossuaries that were discovered there, we know that these are people who they're Jews with traditional names that we even see not just in the first century, but in the Gospels. I mean, there are names of Peter like uh, Simon and Lazarus and so forth that have been found inscribed on these ossuaries. Not saying those are the same ones in the Gospels, but it fits the context. Then there's this first century tomb that has been regarded as the tomb of Lazarus since the time of the early Christians. And what's more, there's talk of Simon the leper in his house there in Bethany, right? Well, in the temple scroll from Qumran, Bethany is also mentioned as a place where lepers were, a leper colony. And so we have a lot of connections about Bethany to the the ancient uh, archaeology and textual resources. And was that the first time we've ever discovered our verification that leprosy was uh, an issue there in that area in the first century, Titus? So as far as physical remains go, that was excavated at the tomb of the shroud. And when they did a skeletal analysis, they found that this person actually had leprosy. And Mm. so that was the first physical evidence 
of it. We had some textual evidence of it before, but physical evidence, yes. And, and, how, and that was a question that had come up. How about the, the tomb itself that is attributed to Lazarus? How does, right there in Bethany, how does that comport with what the, what the Gospel of John says? It's the same general type of tomb, which is one of these rock-cut Arcosolium-type tombs with a, a place for the body to lay. You know, it's carved out of the rock. It would have this big ceiling stone. So it, it fits. Uh, we don't have as detailed of a description of that tomb as we do, say, the tomb of Jesus. Mm -hmm. uh, but it is a first-century tomb right there in Bethany, and it does have this extremely ancient tradition. So I would say it's plausible. It's maybe even likely, but we can't say for certain. Okay, uh, number eight of the top 20 discoveries about Jesus outside the Bible is the inscription regarding the place of the trumpeting. What's that, Simon? I mean, um, Titus, Simon. I'm calling you Simon. That was, that was discovered in the ruins just, uh, just off of the Temple Mount, so on like the southwestern side, and it had fallen down from above, so it seems to have been placed up there where there this tower presumably would have been where there was a trumpeter and this trumpeter would then make these trumpeting sounds uh, at specific times so uh, during the night morning beginning of sabbath things like that uh, sort of like a, a clock a clock tower type of idea in uh, medieval times for example but i find this really interesting also because if we go to the Gospels, to the night of Jesus' arrest, when Peter denies Jesus three times, and, and it talks about the rooster crowing, right? Well, mm -hmm. if we look at that word in Greek, elector, rooster, the rooster crow, that's also a word that is used for the sound of a trumpet. Hmm. And so I, I think that they're actually talking about the trumpet sound being made, and that is telling everybody that the Sabbath is, is starting, you know, it's sunrise. And so that may be a little tie in there with the time of Jesus. Wow. So there's an inscription that's been discovered called the place of the trumpeting on the southwest corner of the Temple Mount. And uh, there's obviously a, a bunch of other debris from the 70 AD destruction. And when you go there, you'll see it all. It's still lying there after 2,000 years. We've got a lot more with Titus Kennedy. His brand new fabulous book's called Excavating the Evidence for Jesus, the Archaeology and History of Christ and the Gospels. We're going through the top 20 discoveries about Jesus outside the Bible. We're going to give you a, probably, I think, one of the most fascinating ones, number nine, right after the break, so don't go anywhere. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turk. We're back in two minutes. Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek, on the American Family Radio Network. If you haven't heard, our brand new book that I wrote with my son is out, Hollywood Heroes, How Your Favorite Movies Reveal God. It's so far, people have liked it. We're getting some pretty good reviews on Amazon. It's a fun way to help people who might not be interested in talking about the Bible to actually look at some of the, their favorite movies and point, to, point out that the stories that they like in the movies are actually 
They're actually partially copied from the greatest story ever told. So this is a fun way to get people, especially even your teenager, more interested in God and Christianity. So check out Hollywood Heroes, how your favorite movies reveal God wherever you get books. And thanks to those of you that have put good positive reviews on Amazon and elsewhere you buy books. It really helps us out. We're going to do another podcast on it here soon with my son. But right now we're talking to Titus Kennedy and his brand new book is called Excavating the Evidence for Jesus. We're on number nine of the top 20 discoveries about Jesus outside the Bible. This one for me is so fascinating, uh, Titus. It's the Caiaphas ossuary. And first of all, what's an ossuary? <laughs> an ossuary is a bone box. So these were carved out of stone. And this was something that was typically used for reburial in the period from about the first century BC until 70 AD, although in places like Galilee, they used them in, into the early second century AD. So this was a type of reburial used for Jews primarily. And this ossuary, uh, there's, as you write in the book, uh, Excavating the Evidence for Jesus, there's been a thousand ossuaries or so discovered in that area, in the area around Jerusalem, or is that is that the whole Holy Land? I don't know. Is that just Jerusalem or the whole Holy Land? Uh, most of them are found in Jerusalem, but there's there's a significant amount in Galilee too. I'm not sure what the exact number is up to now because they keep finding more and more. Uh -huh. But this one was found in 1990 again by accident, and Caiaphas was inscribed on the side. Why is that significant? Well, Caiaphas, of course, is well known as being the high priest who was involved in the trial of Jesus. And we know from the writings of Josephus that his name was Joseph, son of Caiaphas. So he comes from the Caiaphas family, and he's part of this uh, priestly family, supposedly. That's what we read about in the Gospels and Josephus. Well, in 1990, excavating this tomb... It was a tomb of the Caiaphas family. So there was another ossuary there with the Caiaphas name on it. But the most elaborate of all the ossuaries was this one that was inscribed in Aramaic, Joseph, son of Caiaphas. And inside there, they even found bones of a 60-something-year-old man. So that would fit very well with Caiaphas, the high priest. And, of course, the elaborate ossuary that would be fitting of someone of his station and wealth. Uh, but then more recently was discovered another ossuary of his family. It was his granddaughter's ossuary, and she names him. And she also says that he's from the line of these priests of Maaziah from Beit Imri. So those go back. We, we read about them in the book of Chronicles. So we know that this guy was definitely a priest. He was the high priest Caiaphas. And he's, he's actually just one of the many people involved in the trial of Jesus that's attested archaeologically. So not only do we have Caiaphas's burial box, we actually have his bones, probably. Uh, and, then his, yeah, and then his granddaughter, Miriam, that's the Miriam ossuary. Those are two ossuaries that have been discovered related to Caiaphas. And then number 10 on our list here is another fascinating discovery the James Ossuary. What's that about, Kai? I mean, uh, Titus? The James Ossuary is one of these items, these artifacts that was involved in the antiquities trial that went on for a decade. And so the James Ossuary got severely scrutinized, which I think was a good thing mm. because at the end of the trial, these artifacts were actually given back 
to the owner and he wasn't charged with forgery and all sorts of experts looked at this at this ossuary as well as other artifacts and many of them came out saying that it, it looked like it was authentic it seems authentic you know initially this team from the IAA was saying that it was a forgery or at least the ins the inscription was a forgery but the the geologic test showed that the ossuary was legit it was an ancient ossuary from the Jerusalem area but when they examined the patina which is the the ancient residue in the letters of the inscription they found that was ancient and that fit with Jerusalem tombs of the Roman period so then it shifted to all right just this this last part of the inscription is a fake and it was added later but then they they found that there was still patina ancient patina residue in some of the letters from the final name also and what what is that final name all right so the the whole inscription in aramaic reads james son of joseph brother of jesus and that's why this thing got so much attention because just looking at that if you know anything about history and the gospels then you understand that this is probably talking about James, the leader of the Jerusalem church, and Jesus Christ. Now, what's so odd about that inscription is that in the normal protocol for ossuary inscriptions, usually it's just the person's name and then their father's name or sometimes the person's name and their place of origin or their profession, right? You don't have this three-part inscription hardly ever. When you do have something like that, it's it's for a reason. It's because whatever is added on is very important. So in all of the other ossuary inscriptions that have been discovered, there's only one other one that mentions the brother. So we know that the brother is really important here. He's tacked on to the end as this additional identifier. And who do we know that is a James brother of Jesus or a Jesus with a brother James? Well, the only one that we know about in first century Jerusalem is Jesus Christ and James, who then became leader of the Jerusalem church. I mean, Josephus mentions this relationship. He knew who James was. He records his martyrdom and he calls him the brother of Jesus. So this was known. And there was even a statistical study done that looked at the percentage of name usage and then the population of Jerusalem. And it said in, in the first century that there would have been less than two people with this name relationship. Mm. So it's it's very strong evidence that we have an inscription here, not only mentioning James, but also an inscription from the first century in Jerusalem mentioning Jesus himself. So James is killed in 62 AD, thrown off the Temple Mount by the Sanhedrin, according to Josephus and a later writer by the name of Hegesippus. And now it appears... We have his burial box with an inscription. What does the inscription again say, Titus? James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. Wow, that's, that's amazing. Now, I know the Caiaphas ossuary is sitting in the Israel Museum because I've seen it several times. Where is this James ossuary now? Do we know? It's in a private collection still, the same person who owned it. Uh, since uh, since we think since at least 1976, maybe even earlier, it seems like that tomb was broken into around 1970 or so, and then it ended up on the antiquities market. And as far as I know, he's wanting to display a lot of these artifacts, including the James Ossuary, and trying to set up 
some kind of exhibition, but I, I don't think that it's happened yet. So this has been discovered. The Caiaphas ossuary has been discovered. The Miriam ossuary has been discovered. And with regard to the James ossuary, a lot of people were skeptical up front, Titus. But now, after all the analysis, they say it's legit, correct? Quite a few scholars do. There, yeah. there are still some who think that it's partially forged. But there are many, many archaeologists and epigraphers who believe that it is a, a legit first century artifact, whole inscription. Okay. All right, number 11 in the top 20 is the Gates of Hades, or the Gates of Hell, found in Caesarea Philippi. What's this about? So in Caesarea Philippi, you have this area that was a, an ancient temple or a shrine, really, to Pan, this, this Greek Hellenistic god with kind of the, the half goat body there. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was also this uh, temple to Zeus there. And then Herod built another temple there to Augustus. So it's, it's very, very pagan. And the, it's that place that Jesus takes his disciples and they're talking to him. And it's the, the location actually where he asks, who do you say that I am? And then and Peter responds. Well, one of the, the things that Jesus talks about there is the, the rock, you know, the Petra, right? And if you look in this area, it's this huge cliff face, very reminiscent, actually, of the site of Petra in some ways, because it's this big rock cliff where all these things are carved out. But then he also talks about the gates of Hades. Well, right next to all these carvings associated with the Temple of Pan, there's this cave that descends down into the earth, and there's a spring in there. And this is something that probably went back even to Canaanite times and would have been regarded as, as a cult site and an entrance to the underworld, Hades. And so when Jesus talks about the gates of Hades will not overcome, I think that he's using a, a word picture there mm -hmm. based on the geography, the location, the, the structures that are around him. It's amazing. You'll see it too when we go to Caesarea Philippi, this the gates of hell, they're right there, the gates of Hades. All right, number 12 in the top 20 discoveries about Jesus outside the Bible is the fact, Titus, that you say in the book, Excavating the Evidence for Jesus, that the miracles of Jesus are admitted by some non-Christian sources, that he's a miracle worker. What do you mean by that? So if we go back to some of the earliest attestations of the miracles of Jesus or, or mention of them outside of the New Testament, first and second century, we see that these people are not saying that Jesus didn't perform miracles. They're saying that he did perform miracles. They're giving various perspectives about them mm. based on their beliefs or worldview. So we've got Justin Martyr, who writes a letter to the emperor. And Justin used to be a Roman polytheist, but he became a Christian. And then he, write, he writes this letter to the emperor and he appeals to the emperor saying that you can go to your own Roman records in the Acts of Pilate and you can see that Jesus performed some of these miracles. So he's the one Christian source, but we, we look at other people and we look at, for example, Celsus. He talks about this and his explanation is that when Jesus was in Egypt, so he knew about that as a young child, that Jesus acquired miraculous powers and then he went back to Judea and performed miracles 
and proclaim themselves God. So it's very interesting that he knows about this, but he doesn't dispute it. He just has a different explanation. And there's actually more about that right after the break. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turk, my guest, Titus Kennedy, his new book, Excavating the Evidence for Jesus. We're going through the top 20 discoveries about Jesus outside the Bible. Right now we're on number 12. We're back for more in just two minutes. Don't go anywhere. We're back talking about the top 20 discoveries about Jesus outside the Bible. My guest is the brilliant Titus Kennedy, archaeologist who wrote the brand new book, Excavating the Evidence for Jesus, the Archaeology and History of Christ in the Gospels. We're just skimming the surface here on some of these top discoveries. You really got to get the book. And as I say, I read every single word of this book. It's well worth reading. It's a good read. And it's a measured read. It's not sensationalistic at all. Titus just states the facts, and uh, you have them there. And when you look at all the facts, you go, wow, there's a lot of evidence for Jesus even outside the Bible. Now, we were talking about the miracles of Jesus. Titus, I wanted to ask you one other thing. Didn't the Jewish Talmud tacitly admit that Jesus did something miraculous or strange? Yeah, we have in the Mishnah some passages like a reference to an indictment against Jesus the Nazarene who practiced sorcery and led Israel astray you know, through blasphemy. So they are also talking about miracles of Jesus, but saying that it was performed through sorcery, which if we look in the Gospels, it was the same explanation as they were, they were claiming that Jesus performed miracles according to the power of Beelzebul. Mm. So the, you know, the power of the devil, they're talking, they're calling it sorcery. They're not saying that it's coming from God. So they're looking for that. That's their source. The Judaism's leaders opposed to Jesus are saying it's from the devil. Celsus, he's saying it's magic Jesus learned in Egypt. And then uh, we go to Josephus, and he just mentions in passing that, that Jesus performed works, and he uses this Greek word that can be describing uh incredible works okay it, it mm. sounds like he's talking about miracles he doesn't make a comment on it which is what josephus often does he just reports what people are saying he doesn't make a comment on it but he's not he's also doesn't say that this didn't happen mm. so we we've got four sources from four different perspectives none of them say the miracles didn't happen they're all affirming they did they're just explaining the source differently Wow. All right, let's go to uh, number uh, 13, and that is the fearful nature of Pilate. Why was Pilate afraid of upsetting the Jews? We got to look at the historical context of Pilate himself and what's going on in the Roman Empire at this time. So Pilate was a pretty typical Roman governor. He ruled in Judea for 10 years, which was actually a really long time in comparison to most governors. And yet he obviously also had his issues with the local populace. He got into trouble multiple times. By the time we get to the trial of Jesus in 33 AD, we know of at least three situations, probably four situations actually, where Pilate has made the locals mad by something he's done, displaying shields with Caesar's name, uh, Roman eagles, using money 
from the temple treasury to build an aqueduct. And then there's the thing that's talked about in the Gospels, mixing the, the blood of Galileans with their sacrifices. So we don't know exactly what that was, but it sounds like he probably had some people killed. Mm-hmm. And and then we get to 31 AD is the Sejanus affair, the assassination of Sejanus, who is the head of the Praetorian Guard. And he came into that position in 26, same time as Pilate. And uh, Tiberius goes to the island of, of Capri. And Sejanus starts amassing power for himself and acting, being the acting emperor in many ways. Well, eventually, this gets back to Tiberius that Sejanus has aspirations to become the emperor. And so he is assassinated, but not just him. A lot of members of his family and his political associates and friends. So if there is any kind of connection that Pilate had to Sejanus, he would be very concerned. But even if he didn't, he still would be because he, he could see what the emperor was going to do to people that got on his bad side. So in John, it records that if you free this man, you are no friend of Caesar. So that mm. was political terminology for someone who had favor, political favor of the emperor. They're threatening him and saying they're going to send an official delegation to complain, which had already happened to Pilate. Well, that did happen one more time in 36. He was he had an official complaint that went from the Samaritans and he was recalled to Rome by the emperor. Now, Tiberius died before Pilate got back. So he got he was saved essentially because of that. But it makes perfect sense that in 33, he would have just given in to their demands rather than be exiled maybe even executed after losing his position. So he was aligned with this guy, Sejanus, who was already executed, and he was worried he might be next. All the details are in the book, Excavating the Evidence for Jesus. By the way, Titus also points out that the most logical date for the crucifixion of Jesus is 33 AD. We don't have time to get in all the the details here, but get the book and you'll see why. By the way, that lines up perfectly with the prophecy of Daniel 9 as well, that 33 AD would be the crucifixion where the Messiah would be cut off. Also, uh, Titus points out in the book, and I'm going quickly here because we're trying to get through a number of these, that there have been archaeological evidence for Pilate in in coins, in a ring, in an inscription, and in writings, like writings from Josephus. So there's no doubt that Pilate was a real character. All right, how about uh, number 14 in our top 20, the nature and place of the burial and resurrection of Jesus, uh, basically the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. How, how good of evidence do we have for that, Titus? I think we have excellent evidence for that being the tomb of Jesus. So, of course, there's the ancient tradition, which is very strong there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would say it goes back to the first century because for Christians, this was the most important event. And the most important location, it's where Jesus resurrected and left the the tomb. And so they remember that. And Jerusalem wasn't a big city at that time. And people generally didn't move from place to place so often like they do now. So they they would tell it to their kids and their grandkids. And, oh, yeah, down the street, there's the tomb of Jesus. Well, we go to Hadrian yet again. So when he rebuilds Jerusalem as Aelia Capitolina in about 135, he builds a huge double temple to Jupiter and Venus over the tomb of Jesus because, again, he wants to erase the memory of Jesus 
and syncretize these things into Roman religion. That was his tactic now for defeating Christianity. But yet again, what's he do? He preserves the location. And so when Constantine's mother goes there and his architect goes there, they ask the local Christian leaders, where's the tomb of Jesus? They know that it's underneath the temple. So they dismantle the temple and there's this rock cut tomb there. And that's what they build the edicule around. So if we look into things archeologically, that area was outside the walls of Jerusalem in 33 AD. It had been a quarry that then got turned into a garden in the first century BC and started to be used as a graveyard. There are other first century tombs found very close to this tomb of Jesus. When we look at the tomb itself and the architecture of it, we see that it is a single chamber, rock cut, Arcosolian tomb. It's got a burial bench and it would have been sealed with this big stone. That's all specifics that we see in the Gospels also. Now, the single chamber aspect of it is very important because of all the Roman period tombs from the Jerusalem area, it's the only one that is single chamber. All the other ones were multi-chamber because they were used not as individual tombs like that, but as family tombs. So they got expanded over time and, and often reused too, like the garden tomb was reused. So we look at the tomb of Jesus. It was never reused. It was never expanded. It's exactly architecturally as is described. And it, it's in this location where it should be. And the ancient tradition, going back to the earliest documents we have, all say that that's the tomb of Jesus. So I think it's a very, very powerful case for it. Now tell us real quickly about the tomb of the shroud. They discovered that in this burial victim, he had a face cloth just like Jesus. Yeah, he had a linen burial shroud, similar to what's talked about in the gospel narratives. And that's actually the, the tomb where they found the leprosy okay. victim, the person who had leprosy. So we know they were using burial shrouds like that in the time of Jesus. And, uh, you know, the Shroud of Turin, of course, is talked about a lot. Well, when that was tested, it was compared to the weave of some of these first and second century burial shrouds from Judea and it matches in that so there, there's some interesting things to be said about that as yeah well. in fact you have a whole section on it let me squeeze one more in here titus because we just got a couple of minutes left and uh, we'll cover more in the after program but how about number 15 in our top 20 pieces of evidence outside of the bible about jesus is the nazareth inscription tell us about that this is a stone inscription that turned up in Nazareth. We don't know if that's where it was originally placed, but could have been. It's a Greek inscription that states it's an edict of Caesar. So the normal way this would have been done is the, the emperor wrote a letter. And in this letter, he is giving a new law. And then they take that letter, the, the governor and have it inscribed in stone so everybody can read it, put it in the town square mm -hmm. or something like that. So this one talks about there's a new law and the penalty is death. Mm -hmm. And what do you have to do to get the death penalty? Well, it says that if anybody goes in and disturbs a sepulcher sealed tomb and steals the body with wicked intent, they can get the death penalty. So it's an ultra specific law that's talking about the same type of rock cut tomb that Jews used and specifically that was the type of the tomb of Jesus that's sealed by a big stone and 
it's not just, you know, breaking the tomb or, or taking items out of it. It's stealing the body with wicked intent. Now, if we go to Matthew 28, we see that the story that the Roman soldiers were told to spread was that the disciples had come and stolen the body of Jesus. Mm. And it says that that story is spread to this day. So it seems like that's the story that the Roman emperor got. He wanted to make sure that it stopped. Nothing like that happened again. All right, listen, we're going to talk more about this in the after program. And if you want to see the re- the, the, the five more, go to our website, click on Cross-Examine Community. Cross-Examine Community. That's a private place you can go to see this and share this kind of thing with others without the fear of being canceled. We're just starting this thing. I'm back next week. Thanks very much. See you.